All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. A lot of people don't come out and say, oh, I want to conquer death. And I think as technology increases, people become more comfortable with saying, I am somebody who one day is okay with merging with the machine. Hello, my friends. It's Note to Self, the tech show about being human. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and at this very moment, as we are putting together this episode, Americans are going to vote for their next president. And today, we are thrilled to bring you an interview with one of the candidates. You called it the gold standard of trade and, deals. Well, Donald, I know you live in your own reality, but oh, yeah. that is no. No, not either of those two. This candidate aims to mix politics with science and technology in a way that has never been done before. His name is Zoltan Ishtvan, and it's pretty unlikely that you voted for him. But 20 years from now, when his ideas seem less far-fetched, who knows? He could be your man. There is the third-party candidate running on a platform to help people live forever. I think I'll definitely live indefinitely. For the last two years, he's been driving around the country in a campaign bus shaped like a casket, representing the transhumanist party. Wait, don't go anywhere. Yes, it might make you think Ken Kesey meets your local mortuary, but it's not quite as psychedelic as it sounds. The transhumanist philosophy is that humans and technology are inevitably going to merge. And that means that we could, potentially, live forever. How could that happen? Would we even want to live forever? Should tech, science, and politics even mix like this? I'm going to turn the show over to Note to Self's executive producer, Jen Poyant, for this conversation. She's become a little obsessed with understanding transhumanism, in part because of the losses that she's experienced in her own life. Now, whatever your history or political party, just believe me, this conversation will get you thinking way beyond the 2016 election. And I think we can all agree that that's a good thing. Here are Jen and Zoltan. Can you do me a favor and just, I'm sure this is where most people start, but what is transhumanism to you? I like to go with the Latin when describing transhumanism, which means beyond human. But essentially, transhumanism is a social movement of a couple million people around the world that want to use science and technology to radically modify the human being and also to um, modify the human experience. What do you mean by modify the human being and the human experience? Transhumanists want to use technologies like artificial hearts to replace biological hearts because a third of people will die from heart disease um, around the world. They want to use things like um, 
exoskeleton suits to climb Mount Everest. So in case their body might not be strong enough to do. So any kind of technology or science that really makes living better, easier, and more functional is something that I would consider transhumanist. And maybe it's just theoretically, but what's the ultimate goal of transhumanism from your perspective? The number one goal of transhumanism, at least to me, has been to achieve an indefinite lifespan through science and technology. So most transhumanists would say they want to get rid of death or at least make it so that they could control when and how they're going to die. And so transhumanism has often become associated as that movement that wants to conquer death. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to come back to that. Can you tell me when you started to get interested in it and involved, what grabbed your attention first? When I was at college in Columbia University in New York City, in an English class, I was assigned a article to read, and it was on cryonics, the field where you freeze people Mm -hmm. after they have died in hopes to bring them back to life in 50 years in the future when the science or the medicine is better. As soon as I realized that there was a movement afoot to stop death, I thought, wow, this is for me. When you ask transhumanists what kind of converted them to dedicate their time and their energy to transhumanism, a lot of people have a lot of different reasons. In my case, I had always wanted to be a scientist, Mm -hmm. but I had been working for the National Geographic Channel it was a kind of covering war zones and this specific incident with a landmine in Vietnam that really got me. I almost stepped on this mine. This uh, my guide pushed me out of the way and pointed out what I had almost done. You know, I was doing a story there, and the jungles are filled with landmines. And after that moment, I thought, you know, I really should be dedicating my time to transhumanism. I really should be dedicating my time to the science that can overcome biological mortality. Have so, you found that this is an issue that leading technologists are really sympathetic to? I absolutely think that many technologists around the Bay Area and San Francisco, Silicon Valley are absolutely sympathetic to the life extension movement, to transhumanism. The problem, though, is that talking too much about transhumanism still seems a little sketchy or fringe Mm -hmm. to people in the public. So, like I would say, Google is almost a transhumanist company with maybe half its employees being transhumanists, but it's very underground or in the closet still. A lot of people don't come out and say, oh, I want to conquer death and I want to modify my body with a chips and put on a robotic arm. But many of those people feel that way. And I think as technology increases, people become more comfortable with saying, I am somebody who one day is okay with merging with the machine. For example, I have a chip in my hand. And, you know, when I say I have a chip in my hand, people get kind of wigged out. They're like, wow, that's really weird. But increasingly, you're seeing a lot more Silicon Valley types and executives say, you know what, we really support this movement. We really support the merging of human beings with technology. It doesn't mean we're going to lose our humanity. Maybe it means we're going to keep the best of our humanity and take on the very best parts of science and technology and bring us into a world where we have a lot more control over our bodies and also the environment around us. If you look at people like, for example, Elon Musk, I mean, he seems pretty open, obviously, both with space exploration, which seems to be a big, important aspect of transhumanism, considering if everybody can actually control when they die, you're going to need to deal with overpopulation on this planet. You see these moments, just like your reference to Google, why move towards a presidential campaign when you know there are movements, it seems at least to me, within Silicon Valley to do this almost through the marketplace? You know, the biggest problem right now in America, at least in my opinion, is that we have a very kind of conservative, and I almost want to say an anti-science culture, huge parts of the country are not really on board with spending money to start 
upgrading their bodies. And one of the reasons is because, you know, America, broadly speaking, is 75% religious, and they sort of have that afterlife worked out because they're going to go and meet God after they die, and that's what they've been taught and cultured to believe. But most transhumanists are secularly oriented, so they don't believe necessarily in afterlife. So they want to preserve the life they have here on planet Earth as long as they can through science and technology. It kind of goes against the American grain. That said, I think as science and technology progresses forward and the more of the youth become less religious, then I think transhumanism is going to grab hold stronger and stronger. Whether it's about an afterlife or not, why push so hard for this concept of fighting death. Why is that the issue for you? I'm fascinated by this. I know you had a near-death experience, but death is a part of life. It creates lessons for us. It helps us understand the beauty of life. Help me understand why that's the ultimate goal. It's so typical, actually, to have many people tell me this. They say, you know, without death, in the picture, life loses a lot of its meaning. Now, I I can understand that concept, especially philosophically, as long as we were going to remain human beings the way we are now, where, you know, we live 100 years, we have children, blah, blah, blah. But you have to understand that technology is going to radically change the human being. We will not be having human bodies in a hundred years' time. There's no way, even within 15 or 20 years, assuming the trajectory of science holds, that a robotic arm is not going to be superior to a biological arm in 20 years' time. And the same thing, many of us will start upgrading our eyes probably in 25 years' time as robotic eyes become far better for seeing long distances and short distances, for detecting dangers far away. I mean, every part of our body is frail. Every part of our body was not designed to last, whereas human beings now have the power to create themselves so that they can last indefinitely. So what I'm trying to say is you see yourself as this kind of concept of death versus life. But in the future, our IQ might be 1 million times more than what it is now. It's not going to be that death gives us meaning. We're going to get meaning from the fact that the brilliance of our brain power is a million times what it is now. The universe is there for us to play in, and we have so much of it to explore amongst the trillion galaxies. We don't need death to get keep us interested. We don't need death to keep us creating What we need is exploration. What we need is time to just have fun in it. Hmm. Can we talk about where that line gets drawn between, say, when we become cyborgs and what's the difference ultimately if our IQ becomes 10 million times what it is now of us even being human at all by that point? You know, in my case, and I think many transhumanist cases, the ideal scenario is just not to die. We're following the natural path of kind of our evolutionary destiny, and it's something to be embraced, especially when you really look at dying. I mean, think about losing a family member or losing a spouse or even a child. Nothing could be more tragic. So transhumanists are trying to avoid that while also moving into the future and merging with machines such as artificial intelligence so that they can have a whole brand new set of experiences. Why should we be limited to five senses? You know, the touch, smell, and and those kinds of things. We can have thousands potentially. In a minute, Jen presses Zoltan on how eliminating death would actually affect our lives. You know, I've lost two people in my life, and 
the mourning process and grief process that one goes through when you lose someone that close in your life leads human beings into these very strange places. Stay with us. It's Note to Self. I'm Manoush Zomorodi. Let's get back to Jen Poyant, this show's executive producer, and her conversation with the transhumanist candidate for president, Zoltan Istvan. They were just discussing the role of death in our lives. Have you ever lost someone? You know, I have been lucky not to have lost anyone yet. My father is um, very, very old and probably won't live that much longer. So I've been going through that with him but I have not yet, but I'm still, you know, always been fearful of it. Yeah. You know, I've lost two people in my life. My older brother died of cancer about 15 years ago, and he had a five-year battle, and my father died of cancer. And the mourning process and grief process that one goes through when you lose someone that close in your life leads human beings into these very strange places. They're dark sometimes, but they're also quite beautiful. You you know, over a five-year battle with cancer, for example, and I know every death is different and every human being is different, but my brother and I became much closer and we had already been pretty close and we explored ideas about the world and we watched golf championships together on TV. And even today, 15 years later, I tune in every year to watch the Masters. And I, I just wonder if this movement flattens those deep poetic experiences that you can only have through suffering? Well, I I understand it. It is such a challenging question because when you talk about especially someone going through mourning, it's the most one of the most heartfelt experiences that person can go to. But, you know, transhumanists are out there to try to make it so that mourning is something that people would never go through anymore unless they really wanted to of course you know we'd always allow people to do what they wanted right. so can i but, interrupt you for a second i apologize sure, go ahead. and that's my point is that of course no one would necessarily want it but there's value in it there's value in understanding human relationships on a deeper level there's value in for me looking back on my relationship with my brother and understanding that it does not end after his death and that yes i miss him But our bond and those beautiful moments that we had are just as valuable as the days where he was not sick and we could go to a baseball game together. What I don't understand is the instinct that it's so bad that if we could just eliminate it, you're also eliminating all sorts of perceptions and understanding and ways that communities come together in death. And I'm not sure if... You see the value in those experiences as well. Yes. No, I, I, I do understand. And we have been going through this death process forever. So it's very much ingrained in us. But, of course, lots of things have been ingrained in us that we have sort of overcome. And many times when we have overcome things, we found new measures of beauty. You know, one of the things I always tell people is instead of going through the, you know, a five-year battle of cancer, maybe one could have gone through a five-year experience of just a new discovery of friendship or of brotherly love and, and these kinds of things. So, you know, I understand there's a lot of 
impact that comes from someone going through a mourning process. But there's also a lot of impact that comes from not going through that and having a different experience. It's always, you know, just because you miss the mourning doesn't mean you're not growing in some other way. Mm -hmm. And again, we're not trying to take away death entirely. I never say I want to live forever. Mm -hmm. What I generally say is I just want to have death under my control so that I could check out when I want if I want to check out at all. What I'm trying to say is human beings have become so intelligent over the last hundred years, and that's nothing to what's going to happen in the next thousand. And we're going to have the ability to reverse everything. The mourning process is a biological process in our brains. And in literally 25 years, many of us will have cranial implants that will change that. We'll be able to have that experience without actually even having gone through it. Transhumans are aspiring to create a world where we're in charge of nature. We're in charge of our bodies. But why would you want to live in a world like that? Because it's brilliant. There's so many things to do. I mean, there are a trillion galaxies out there, and each galaxy has about 500 million stars and planets. Can you imagine how much there is to explore? We're just getting to that point through machine intelligence where we're going to be able to start exploring everything. The whole Star Trek era is beginning, and even the Star Trek era is such a – we'll be an infant in a universe. There's so much to see. Okay. I just want to push back on this further. I think that that's admirable in the sense of space exploration, and yes, there are infinite worlds that we can explore, and I would love to explore that. But there are also infinite worlds within our own world here that we can explore both internally within our souls, within our – Art, culture, there's just all sorts of ways to interpret the world we live in right now. Why push it to this extreme? I don't understand that. Well, for me, the main reason is because once you die, at least for me, an atheist, you have no more memory. There's no more existence. It's over. Right now, I'm just trying to get it to a point. You know, I have a two-year-old and a five-year-old and, of course, my wife. And I just want to make it like my father so that we don't have to go through the tragedies of living and dying just because that's sort of what we were born into. You brought up your wife and your two kids. What does your wife think about this? Particularly as you, you know, presidential campaign is a serious pressure both financially as well as on your time. Is she supportive of what you're doing? So my wife is very supportive of what I'm doing. You know, it's funny because a lot of people ask, is she a transhumanist? And even though my wife is a physician, she's an OBGYN, she's not necessarily a transhumanist. She, of course, believes in science. But, you know, she's been very supportive of the campaign. One of the things that a lot of people don't know about my presidential campaign is I don't take donations. I'm making a real stand for campaign finance reform. So I've been paying the uh, campaign out of my pocket um, and my, my wife's pocket, too. So we realize, well, we're not going to win this time around. We'll probably make a much larger, more involved run in four or eight years' time when the party is a lot bigger and when, I, you know, my stature has sort of grown as somebody in the public. But she's thankfully been very supportive so far of my run. She even came on my bus trip with the kids uh, for a few days. That's cool. Is it, um, so what's the real goal for this? The most important thing I'm trying to do with my presidential campaign is raise awareness so that the people will hopefully vote in one day politicians who would want to spend money on life extension medicine, on transhumanism technology, on technology that would make ourselves live much longer. You know, the United States government spends about 20% of its GDP on the military, on defense, on bombs, and only 2% on science. And of that 2%, it only spends a tiny fraction on what we might call anti-aging medicine. 
one of the main things transhumanists are doing is trying to stop or reverse aging so that we don't actually continue to be 110, 120 in very old bodies. There's a very good chance through genetic engineering here in the next 5 or 10 or 15 years, we're going to start having some success with rejuvenating our body parts so that one day, probably in 25 or 35 years, we could all remain 30 or 40 years, whatever our optimum health is that we want it to be. Hmm. And what happens after the campaign? I'm pretty dedicated to following down this path to become much more of a what you might call a normal politician. And I'm hoping that sort of in the same way Al Gore or, you know, or even Bernie Sanders, Al Gore was talking about environmentalism in the 1980s and everyone thought he was uh, crazy then. Well, you know, it turns out now 25 years later, he was spot on. So I'm hoping that at some point history will coincide with what I've been doing now, except I'll be much more of a you know, I guess honed down or kind of a seasoned politician who can really rise up in the ranks, participate in the debates and take my campaign to a national level where I actually have a chance of winning the presidential election. Okay, here we are in 2016. Imagine that you have successfully established a political career in the United States over the next, say, 10 years or so. That gets us to 2026. Where do you see yourself in, say, 2040? Imagine your life. Yes, no, of course. In 2040, look, the whole world will be different. I have no doubt by 2030 that artificial intelligence will be far superior in intellectual capacities to ourselves. I would be very surprised if people are human beings. I think we'll all be cyborgs at that point. I think there'll be body shops where we're replacing our limbs and things like that. You know, most people die from organ failure. So I wouldn't be surprised if most of our organs, our body are robotic organs at that point, all controlled by software, all working together. They allow each of us to be sort of super people. We'll be able to run you know, faster than cheetahs. We worry a lot about environmental issues and stuff like that, but there are already people working on solving some of these problems that where we don't have to breathe oxygen anymore. We'll have a bio lung. There's a little lung that's about the size of a can of Coca-Cola they're already doing in human trials right now. And the same thing with the genetic editing. I have friends who are trying to splice in plant photosynthesis DNA into their skin so that they can go out into the sun and produce energy without eating. You know, talk about solving world hunger. So by 2040, we're talking about a brand new world. I would say it'd be virtually unrecognizable. Well, mostly unrecognizable to what we're discussing right now. Many thanks to Zoltan Ishvan, head of the Transhumanist Party, and note to self's executive producer Jen Poyant for having a conversation that made me think probably more than any other political debate over the past year. I mean, maybe we should listen to this episode at least every four years and see if Zoltan's ideas become less and less trippy and more like a truly plausible political manifesto. Next week things are going to come back down to earth. Driverless cars are not going to replace regular vehicles as fast as the media might make you think. So meanwhile, how do we deal with a nation of distracted and potentially dangerous drivers? We're slaughtering ourselves on the highway as a consequence of our belief that we're all great uh, multitaskers, and it isn't true. A look at what we can do to stay safer on the roads in a world that still requires human hands on the wheel and non-robotic eyes on the road. That's next week. 
Subscribe to Note to Self wherever you listen to podcasts if you haven't already. If you're listening on iTunes, give us a ranking too. It's kind of like giving us a vote of confidence. We know there are a lot of great podcasts out there, so it means a lot to us that you're listening. The Note to Self team is Jen Poyant, Jenna Cagle, and Joe Plord. Lots of gratitude to Rachel Neal for all her help this week. Note to Self is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Manoush Samarodi. Live long and prosper. Image of Sirach. Father of all we now hold true. As I turned and my eyes beheld you, I displayed emotion. I beg forgiveness. <laughs>